open source development has gone from pipe dream to mainstream. Today, as many as 96% of applications include open source code. And that might have seemed far-fetched in the 90s when open source started gaining traction. Today, there are thousands of open source projects out there. They run the gamut of the software development, management, and infrastructure landscape. And while there's a big value add for organizations as they integrate open source into their proprietary software, there's also an inherent risk. We see it all the time. Data breaches, compromised code, vulnerability backlogs that number in the thousands. So how do organizations weigh the benefit of open source versus the ongoing and increasing risk it carries? I'm David Carty, site editor of Search Software Quality. And I'm Ryan Black, assistant site editor of Search Software Quality. This is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we spoke with David Nally, the Executive Vice President of the Apache Software Foundation. Nally has more than two decades of experience with open source software. We spoke with him about the challenges facing the open source community now and in the near future, as well as the role big tech companies should have in open source contribution. Plus, we discussed the role that Apache and other foundations play in helping the open source community thrive. Many applications contain open source code, uh, as many as 96% uh, according to, uh, to some figures out there. Can you explain how that number got to be so high, and uh, do you think that it will continue to increase? I think it will continue to increase. I think when, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of talk about reusing code and repurposing code that had already been written. And that was a, for many folks, they considered that a pipe dream. Uh, they thought that, you know, this write it one time, run it anywhere and, and run it on multiple platforms was uh, the thing of the future. And the reality is that we were doing a little more loose coupling than perhaps uh, folks originally thought about. But that's where we're at. Uh, you know, there's no need to write a web server. There's no need to write a Java application server because we have multiple of those to choose from that are freely available and, and much higher quality than we could probably write in the first pass. So my expectation is, is that as we, as organizations strive to deliver value, and that's the only reason organizations write software, right, is they want to deliver some value, then the focus is going to be on what actually delivers value. And that is, you know, that's not writing another web server. And so to the degree that uh, those foundational layers help us and basically insulate us from having to do work that doesn't necessarily add value to the stack, then I think we're going to continue to reuse code and, and do that via using open source uh, libraries and, and products that are already there. Uh, so I think that trend's certainly increasing. I, I'm, I'm not surprised by the 96% number at all. I think that especially the newer the application, the more likely it is to have a very small amount of things that add value over the rest of that foundation. Is there such a thing as being too reliant on open source code, perhaps if you're in a highly regulated industry or something like that? I think that there is the possibility of being um, carelessly reliant on open source. And I think if you, 
if you look at this from an economics perspective, we have a situation that is ripe for a tragedy of the commons, where we have this this common framework that the, is available to us, and people are using it, but not necessarily that many people are caring for it. And so, you look at Heartbleed, and the world was shocked that that there were two folks who basically worked on that part-time and nobody was really paying them for it. And the entire world was was uh, dependent upon two guys to, to continue caring about open SSL. So I think you can make some bad choices or you can be, you can put yourself in a place where you're reliant on things that no one's caring for anymore. And I think that's certainly a dangerous position to put yourself in. I do think you need to take some care about what kind of open source you're looking at, what kind of open source you're consuming, especially if it becomes vital to your business. I don't think we're in the place where you can just say, all right, I need a library. I will use this library, consume it blindly, and assume that everything will be fine, especially for five or ten years down the road. You know, that's a perfect segue into my next question um, to bring up another prominent example in the case of Equifax. You know, the company supposedly had uh, thousands of vulnerabilities uh, prior to their data breach. So how would you recommend for those organizations trying to keep up with those open source vulnerabilities, how should they tackle eliminating that backlog and uh, keeping up with that backlog? So I will tell you that it's a very difficult problem to manage. Uh, and I see folks who have a dependency list sometimes that exceeds a thousand open source components in a single product. Wow. And so that, that, that can be a difficult, difficult problem to solve. I think that, uh, you have to be paying attention to, uh, what's coming out from the projects, you know, so the ASF has an announce list where we announce new releases of software all the time, including security releases. And you know, there's also tons of resources. Miter, uh, the CVE project at, uh, has uh, announcements. Bug track is another mailing list that you can consume security issues from, uh, or you can pay a service to to inform you about that and provide you with that in a way that's a little more easily consumable. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, you can't assume that just because you're consuming something that it's okay, there's a constant maintenance uh, issue that you're going to have to deal with with any software. And when you're, when you're consuming open source, there needs to be a maintenance plan that goes along with it. And I've seen some organizations, they will do a full procurement process where they evaluate where the open source software is coming from, how it's updated, how often they should be expecting to update it. But consuming it without a maintenance plan in there or a plan for how you're going to be made aware of security issues and how you're going to handle upgrades is setting yourself up for failure. A lot of the problems that we're coming to see today uh, are also around just the velocity of how fast upgrades are happening and how fast updates are being pushed out in some of these open source packages. And when you're deploying software that you know, you're releasing,
release cycle on the software may be six months or a year. If the project is pushing out releases every month or every two weeks, you've got a much more difficult problem uh, on your hands. And so I think that you've got to come away with you know, what's a plan that matches my code's velocity uh, or my product's velocity, and how do you mirror that up with um, with what the project that I'm consuming uh, is using? I just wanted to, I know we were talking a bit about security, and that reminded me of uh, something else that we were talking about. Uh, I know within the past year, we've seen cases where like third-party contributions to open-source softwares were actually pretty malicious contributions. That an example that comes to mind is like there was a, a compromised NPM package. And so I was curious, like, yeah. what do uh, what does an open source uh, the like a uh, open source foundation like Apache, and what do their communities do to kind of maintain the openness that's kind of so fundamental to the open source project, but still safeguard users from compromised code? So uh, there's several things that happen at the ASF. Uh, the first is we understand that. Uh, there has to be a viable community around a project if the project is going to have any kind of long-term life. That means it can't be one person. Uh, so we we kind of have a test immediately that is looking for uh, looking for at least three participants who are actively watching the uh, commit mailing list. They're watching all of the commits flowing into the code base. They're actually evaluating releases. And uh, so we actually have the minimum number of, of project management committee members uh, necessary to create a release or for a project to continue operating to set at three. For many projects, that's not enough, but that's, that's our bare minimum. And when I was a member of the board of directors, one of the things we were doing is that every quarter we were looking at every project at the foundation to make sure that there was still enough vibrancy in life and that enough people were paying attention to what was going on in the project that it wasn't going to basically be unattended. Uh, you know, the, the famous thing about open source is that all bugs are, uh, are pretty easy to deal with uh, given enough eyeballs. And, you know, but you're, you're actually... Uh, dependent upon there being enough eyeballs. And so that's the first first stage. The second is we have contributors come in and we have really a multi-tiered system. So when you start contributing to a project, you're going to submit a pull request or you're going to submit a patch file to the project and someone will review that. And largely that's around technical accuracy of the patch and are you headed in the same direction as the rest of the project. And so it's actually um, a pretty big step when you move from submitting patches or submitting pull requests to actually having direct commit access. And then the projects are actually managed by folks on a project management committee. And those folks are essentially, it's, a, it's another layer of trust and a feeling that you know this person is interested in the long-term health of the project. And that's worked very well for the ASF because it allows us to, long before there's problems, we can say, hey, you know, there's just nobody who cares about this software anymore. We need to signal to the rest of the world that 
that that's a problem and that they should be aware of that. GitHub recently launched its uh, sponsors program, uh, which allows developers to receive funding when they contribute to widely used open source projects. Um, I'm curious um, how familiar you are with that program, what you think about the program, and uh, you know maybe what else can be done more generally to incentivize developers to contribute and maintain open source projects. I'm aware of the I'm aware of the initiative that GitHub has. I don't know that I necessarily have a, an opinion one way or the other because I'm not I've not been the beneficiary nor have I sent money into it, so I can't speak to its efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about the ASF is we don't pay for any code development. Mm-hmm. All of the folks who contribute code at the ASF are, uh, we call them volunteers because they're volunteers to the foundation. They may be employed by someone who actually pays for them to work on those open source projects, but the foundation itself does not actually pay anyone to, the, to develop code. And, you know, one of our, we care deeply about uh, being neutral and not picking winners or losers in the marketplace. And our, our philosophy around that is that if enough people care, then a project will flourish. And if people stop caring, we shouldn't be propping it up artificially. And that's worked rather well for us. It's, uh, you know, it, it's clear when there are times that a, that a project's clearly going to be relevant for, for scores of years and people will continue to care about it. They'll continue to work on it. And then there's, there's times where projects are clearly faltering because the marketplace has decided that we don't want to pay anyone. And our, our focus is we consider it part of the public's trust that we signal, hey, nobody's paying attention to this anymore. You shouldn't be using this or you should at least be aware that nobody's paying attention to it anymore if you're going to use it. I think from a, I think it's an interesting model in terms of what GitHub is trying to do. I think it, we'll have to wait and see what, what the actual outcome is in terms of does this program make open source more sustainable or not? And I, I think, uh, I think we won't know that for a while. On a similar note, I'd also be curious to get your take on taken in a general sense, like on uh, on the model in which developers create open source software on large companies' dime. I I think that, you know, certainly there are a lot of large companies who create open source software and pay their employees to contribute to it. I think there's also a large number of companies who pay their employees to contribute to open source software that they didn't originate. I think that there's there's been a history of that both being wildly successful in many cases and also being, uh, you know, failures where the company decided that that strategy wasn't working and left and, and abandoned projects. Do you think it's a bit of a mixed bag then? I think it is, and I don't. I'm not necessarily saying the the method is wrong, but it, there are clearly both successes and failures that you can point to for each model. What do you think should be the obligation of some of these big tech companies like Amazon or Google uh, to contribute to some of these projects? I mean, clearly they uh, see the benefits of a a lot of this open source code. So should there be sort of a a standard of what's expected for them in terms of open source contribution? In, In an ideal world, I suspect that we would have 
um, enlightened uh, self-interest that would have us working on the things that uh, are responsible for us, you know, essentially being able to make money, right? And so any company, regardless of size, would say, hey, these five or 10 projects are responsible for a lot of my revenue or uh, reducing the amount of money that it costs me to develop a product, and we should see some contribution there. I don't know that that has, that we've achieved that state. I think there's certainly some very self-enlightened companies out there that realize that open source allows them to do amazing things and has allowed them to, to get to market very quickly. And they're, they have folks working on that. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, we, we only have to look at a handful of different examples and we can see plenty of things that are incredibly widely used that very few people are taking advantage of. And you know, I don't know that um, I don't know that we're going to be in a place where we can ever dictate to a company, you know, you consume X amount of open source, so you should also contribute X amount of folks to work on open source projects. The other problem is that, you know, if you're consuming a thousand components in a single product, you can't then turn around and necessarily contribute a thousand employees to work on those 1,000 1, projects. I think sure. there are a number of efforts out there that look at sharing that, that burden. And, and those are, those are interesting uh, in that they recognize that there are some core fundamental open source packages that need attention. And even if they're not necessarily the most cutting edge or the most interesting today, because they're so fundamental and foundational to everything that we build on, they're working on them. And I see efforts like that coming out of the uh, uh, European Council uh, seems to be putting some efforts in there, holding hackfests and getting folks to contribute to a number of different open source projects. There's a number of commercial working groups that sit down and compare open source usage and where they have problems and they, they start to coalesce around what's important for us to focus on as an industry. And uh, I think those are valuable. I think that's trying to solve this problem, recognizing the problem, and, and trying different things to solve it. But I don't know that there, we have a perfect solution today for that problem. So software development teams often will use uh, various management tools to keep track of progress, software requirements, issues, etc. I was curious what maybe what methods or tools they might use to keep track of the conditions that open source licenses stipulate and, you know, how would they track, manage those requirements, you know, like essentially like the stuff they need to observe that's like laid out in those licenses. Sure. So uh, I'll tell you that there are, as a matter of fact, there's a cottage industry around license compliance and open source. And in some cases that becomes very complex, especially we have, scores of licenses out there, and they all have slightly varying degrees of requirements that you have to comply with. And uh, I'll tell you how generally at the Apache Software Foundation, we handle that problem. It's all kept in text files in our source code repositories. 
Um, but it starts, we have essentially a, um, a list of approved licenses, and those are broken down really into, into two different groups, uh, the kind we can incorporate and modify and the kind we can just consume. Uh, we call those Category A and Category B, and I'm grossly oversimplifying the process, but, uh, you know, if it's Category A or Category B, you can have that as a dependency in your uh, product at the Apache Software Foundation and can consume that. And then we have two different files that we keep as text files uh, called the license and the notice file. And we track the license obligations and uh, provide them the notices as required in the notice file. One of the things that we do to make that simple though, and it's, simple, not just for us, but for our downstream consumers, is our standard is that we don't want anything more restrictive than the Apache software license in the software that we include. And that has greatly simplified the process for us because a lot of the, I won't say more restrictive, but a lot of the uh, licenses with additional terms that are more complicated they're simply not on our not on our available license list, and uh, that saves us, you know, quite a bit of that headache because those are automatically not part of our of the uh, options that we have in the first place. But there are a number of tools out there from a number of different companies that will tell you all about your license obligations, create entire manifest for you uh, if you need that. Uh, that is a, uh, that's a industry who seems to be flourishing at the moment because open source compliance can get very convoluted, particularly when you're dealing with somewhere between scores and hundreds of dependencies with different licenses. Uh, let me ask you quickly, David. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things here today. Um, what do you consider the biggest challenge that the open source community will face over the next, we'll say, five years? Well, you know, I see a number of, of large challenges. Some of them are, are things like maintenance. I, I do think that there's this ever-growing question about what open source is. And there are folks who have seen the tremendous benefit of the open source development methodology, and they don't necessarily see just the benefits of the development methodology, but they may see it as uh, there being some marketing uh, benefits, customer acquisition benefits, and you know, at the same time, they may not necessarily want all of the things that come along with being an open source project. And I think uh, defining open source's place in the tech landscape and what open source is going to be in the coming decades is part of the challenge that really faces open source because even in the two decades that I've been involved in open source, that has that's changed pretty considerably. And you know, what used to be uh, a bunch of folks who cared deeply about open source ideology or free software ideology, we're seeing that uh, that the rest of the world now cares about open source. 
and we see Congress having investigations that involve open source software. And you know, a decade ago, they probably had no idea that open source existed. Uh, so I think that having to figure out what our place in this world is and what we're going to do as a as an industry around open source is going to be one of the big challenges. And you know, there's there's constantly going to be, I think, this uh, tragedy of the commons that is going to remain a lingering and ever-growing risk to open source. And I think we're going to have to, to figure out how to deal with that, how to manage that risk, both as a both from the tech industry and the open source software perspective. So one more question I wanted to ask you before we let you go. Obviously, Apache has a number of uh, uh, projects under under its umbrella, you know, over 300, uh, something along those lines. I'm curious if you have, um, you know, uh, one or two you'd like to mention that's a particularly exciting uh, community or particularly vibrant community that you'd like to mention. Sure. I'll tell you my out front favorite is CloudStack, which is an infrastructure as a service platform. And it's one of my favorites because i that's where I've done a lot of work. I think there are some amazing, amazing projects out there. And I'll call out just a few that, I'm, that I've been impressed by recently. And I'll tell you, one of the problems that I had when I was a director was, you know, every quarter I was reviewing every project at the ASF. And every quarter it found, it seemed like I was finding a new project that I hadn't previously seen. Mm-hmm. But a couple of really interesting ones are Finneract, which is financial software. And it's really, think about banking, especially for the developing world. So open source banking software. Mm-hmm. Thailand, which is in the big data space and largely was uh, developed by the Chinese open source community. Uh, and Beam, which has uh, become a bit of a translation layer to uh, allow a number of different big data streaming and and uh, other tools to interoperate. Um, and those are the ones that jump out immediately. I will tell you one of the one of the fascinating things is getting to read reports that the projects are generating every quarter and seeing how uh, how they're dealing with growth how they're dealing with uh, lack of activity sometimes is fascinating. And you're right, the ASF has 300 or so products that are that call the foundation home, and they are widely varied from very low-level libraries all the way up to end-user tools and developer tools. And there's lots of fascinating projects that, that are hiding out at Apache.org. Interesting stuff. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time, David. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And that was our discussion with David Nally. Thank you for joining us. Please be sure to check out searchsoftwarequality.com for more articles on application development, testing, and agile topics. Be sure to follow us on Twitter as well, at softwaretestTT.